Hello, this is Empires and Civilizations. Episode 10, A Caliphate Transformed. In 661, Muawiyah emerged as the winner of the first fitna, establishing the Umayyads, the family that had once persecuted Muslims, as the leaders of the Muslim world. How did this come about? In order to answer that, we must journey back even beyond the time of Muhammad. Both Muhammad and the Umayyads belonged to the Quraysh tribe, which ruled Mecca at the time of Muhammad's birth. Before Muhammad, however, there was a member of the Quraysh named Abd Manaf who lived during the second half of the 5th century. Abd Manaf was said to be the father of twin sons, Hashim and Abd Shams. Hashim was the great-great-grandfather of Muhammad, while Abd Shams was the ancestor of the Umayyads. Many stories about Hashim and Abd Shams are apocryphal and clearly favor Hashim. For example, even though Abd Shams was older, Hashim received his family's wealth and prestige. Abd Shams had a son, Umayyah, which was where the term Umayyad comes from, who is the complete opposite of Hashim. Thanks to his generosity, Hashim obtained the prestigious duties of supplying pilgrims to Mecca, while Umayyah was left out of power. In spite of this, by the time of Muhammad, the descendants of Abd Shams had the wealth and power, while the descendants of Hashim did not. Then came Muhammad, and despite opposition from the Umayyads, led by Abu Sufyan, Muhammad was successful in establishing Islam and spreading it across Arabia. When it became clear that his opposition was doomed to failure, Abu Sufyan converted to Islam, but it is debated how genuine this conversion was. It was in this situation where a young Muawiyah grew up. Because of conflicting sources, Muawiyah was born either in 597, 603, or 605 in Mecca. Not much is known about Muawiyah's early life, and Muawiyah started entering the historical narrative in 636, when he was given command of an advanced force of no more than 3,000 men during the Muslim conquest of Syria. Of course, he served under his elder brother Yazid during and after the Battle of Yarmouk. Then, Muawiyah moved into more important roles. He was one of the Muslim witnesses who signed the Treaty for Capitulation of Jerusalem after the death of Yazid and many superior officers during the plague of Amawas in 639, Muawiyah was one of the few commanders left. Thus, Umar appointed Muawiyah as governor of Syria, and Uthman added Palestine to Muawiyah's jurisdiction, giving Muawiyah control over all the Levant. And of course, in the previous episode, I covered everything Muawiyah did after that. Fast forward to 661, which is where our story begins. Muawiyah established his capital at Damascus, which served as his political base during his governorship of Syria. Damascus was close to the border with the Byzantine Empire and crucial Levantine ports, meaning that controlling Damascus allowed access to major communication routes. Yet Damascus was a medium-sized city whose revenues were insufficient for maintaining a large army or bureaucracy. Muawiyah's decision to move the capital to Damascus would eventually haunt his successors, but for now, it would signal the beginning of Syrian domination over the Arab world. Muawiyah's first task was to establish his authority in Iraq, as that region had opposed him during the first fitna. In order to subdue both Ali's partisans and Karajites, Muawiyah required experienced governors. Muawiyah brought Mugira bin Shuba out of retirement and made him governor of Kufa, although his choice was probably based on the fact that Mugira supported him during the first fitna. Still, Mugira's selection proved to be a wise one, since Mugira was able to quell the tensions in Kufa by keeping a lax administration with the exception of imposing a tribute. So long as public order was maintained, Mugira allowed the Kufans to do what they wanted. The Karajites were a different matter. 
Karajite bands posed no real threat to Muawiyah, but they were a major security threat to Iraq. The best of these bands consisted of only 300 men led by Al-Mustarid ibn Ulafa. In 662 or 663, this group swore loyalty to Al-Mustarid as caliph, but Al-Mustarid was killed in battle in 664. However, the Karajite threat never really fizzled. Basra, on the other hand, did not contain widespread Shia sentiment, but random crime and street violence were out of control. In order to restore order, Muawiyah appointed Abdallah ibn Amr, who had been in charge of Basra before, but had to flee the city after backing the losing side during the Battle of the Camel. Abdallah's easygoing approach was a disaster, as he refused to punish anyone. When confronted about this, he replied, quote, I am on intimate terms with the people. How can I look at a man whose father's or brother's hand I cut off? End quote. By 664, Muawiyah was tired of Abdallah's lack of initiative and replaced him with Ziyad ibn Sumayyah. Ziyad came from a servile family and originally was a supporter of Ali, but Muawiyah was able to win Ziyad over to his cause by proclaiming that Ziyad was the son of Abu Sufyan. Since Abu Sufyan was not alive, no one could validate Muawiyah's claim, so many simply agreed with Muawiyah. During his service, Ziyad repressed crime and disorder while establishing fair treatment and justice. When Mugira died in 668, Muawiyah added Kufa to Ziyad's domain, making Ziyad viceroy of the east. In 671, Ziyad oversaw the migration of 50,000 settlers to Khorasan, mostly in the region around Merv. When Ziyad died in 673, his son Ubaidullah served as governor of Basra for another 10 years. In Hejaz, Muawiyah appointed Marwan ibn al-Hakam, first cousin and advisor of Uthman, as governor of Medina, Mecca, and Taif. That appointment might have been risky, given that Marwan was also an Umayyad. Muawiyah appointed governors, or emirs, that would be loyal to him, with the exception of Syria, which was governed by Muawiyah himself. Muawiyah created general policies that he expected his governors to follow and kept his eye on them. His governors were allowed to implement any tactics they wanted. Governors could appoint sub-governors, and so on. A governor's power seemed to include tax collection, providing public order, and distributing pay. Governors, especially governors around the border regions, could participate in the conquests. A governor's authority derived from the support of the Ashraf, or tribal leaders. Ashraf were present in the governor's councils, or majilis, and it was the tribesmen that formed a governor's shirta, or police force. Now let's turn to Muawiyah's attitude towards Christians throughout his empire. Even as governor of Syria, he allowed Christians to build the first Muslim navy. While it was clear that Muawiyah tolerated Christians, he discontinued the practice of spending revenues on monasteries and churches. However, Muawiyah did provide funds to restore a cathedral in Edessa after an earthquake devastated it in 679. At the time, the Christians were divided into Chalcedonians, Monophysites, and Nestorians, groups that disagreed on the number of natures of Christ. The Byzantines controlled the distribution of bishoprics among these sects, but under Muawiyah, each church was allowed to appoint its own bishops free from government interference. Although Muawiyah treated churches fairly and equally, his policies made the acquisition of resources for churches much more difficult. Thus, the power of churches began to wither away. Muawiyah continued the war against the Byzantines. The Byzantine emperor, Constance II, moved to Sicily in 661 for obscure reasons. Perhaps he was depressed by recent losses at the hands of Byzantine enemies, the most prominent of which being the Arabs. Whatever the reason, Constans was assassinated in his bath in 668, and the throne fell to his son, Constantine IV, 
who proved to be a capable commander. However, that did not prevent Muawiyah from renewing the land campaigns into Anatolia. Every summer, and even in most winters, Umayyad armies would cross into Anatolia, sometimes in concert with naval raids against the Anatolian coast. Muawiyah's favorite general for these campaigns was Habib ibn Maslama al-Firi, but when Habib died in 663, Muawiyah relied on another experienced general, Busur ibn Abi Arta al-Amiri. Busur had participated in several campaigns against the Byzantines while Muawiyah was still governor, and he supported Muawiyah during the first fitna. By appointing Busur as a military commander, Muawiyah must have been rewarding him for his loyalty and talent. The campaigns into Anatolia were little more than raids, but make no mistake, these raids were destructive. Archaeological evidence suggests that cities in eastern Anatolia were abandoned and urban centers were reduced to hilltop fortresses. While cities beyond Tarsus were destroyed and plundered, they were never permanently occupied. Perhaps Muawiyah was attempting to drain the resources of the Byzantine economy. Also, Anatolia was a high plateau with severe winters and a lack of supplies, making it difficult for the Umayyads to live off the land. Thus, Muawiyah could only have resorted to quick raids. When Constance II was still emperor, the Byzantines made little to no effort to counter these raids, but after Constantine IV became emperor, the Byzantines maintained their presence in Anatolia. Although the Umayyad Caliphate's border in Anatolia was stabilized, there were other avenues for expansion. A recently strengthened Muslim navy raided as far as Sicily in 669. Rhodes and Crete were conquered in 672 and 674, respectively. In 674, Tarsus fell as well. Also in 674, Muawiyah launched his most ambitious project, an attempt to take Constantinople. From the port of Cyzicus in western Anatolia, a Muslim fleet blockaded Constantinople for several years. The details are unclear, but this is the first time a Muslim force attempted to take Constantinople. The blockade continued for several years until, in 678, a revived Byzantine navy attacked the Muslim ships with an innovative weapon, Greek fire. The Byzantine historian Theophanes the Confessor states that in 672, quote, Kalinikos, an architect from Heliopolis in Syria, took refuge with the Romans and manufactured a naval fire which he kindled the ships of the Arabs and burnt them with their crews. In this way, the Romans came back in victory and acquired the naval fire, end quote. And that's it. Details regarding the invention and composition of Greek fire have been lost to history, so we can only make educated guesses. It was probably a liquid hydrocarbon, like naphtha, but whatever it was, Greek fire possessed several properties. It could be sprayed at enemy ships, water could not extinguish it, and balls of cloth soaked in it burned anything they came into contact with. The Arab fleet did not stand a chance against this medieval superweapon. The Umayyads were compelled to retreat and suffered even more losses from a storm. Greek sources state that Muawiyah was forced to pay a substantial tribute. The last time I discussed North Africa, the Muslims had won a decisive victory at the Battle of Sufatullah in 647. Since then, the Muslims were preoccupied with the first fitna, allowing the Byzantines to restore partial control in the region. The Byzantines used their navy to make coastal raids on Umayyad territory, reoccupied the region of Barca, and took temporary control of some Tripolitanian towns. The Byzantine navy was formidable because it threatened communications in the eastern Mediterranean. However, the Byzantines were not able to launch a counteroffensive. North Africa was huge, coordinating an army was a nightmare, and the Byzantines failed to utilize local manpower. A series of rebellions, occurring in 661, 663, and 669, hindered the Byzantines. 
In 669 or 670, Muawiyah sent Uqba ibn Nafi, a nephew of Amr ibn al-As, west with 10,000 soldiers from Egypt. In 670, he founded the extremely important city of Kairouan, which was used as a forward operating base, and in that same year, he subjugated the region of Byzacena, which is now in southern Tunisia. But in 675, Uqba was recalled and replaced with Abu Muhajir. Abu Muhajir conquered the Cape Bon Peninsula and subjugated most of the Byzantine province of Africa Proconsularis. In 678, an unidentified Byzantine authority in Carthage signed a treaty with Abu Muhajir, possibly because Umayyad armies were in the vicinity of the important city. The treaty ceded the province of Byzacena to the Umayyads. For several years, Abu Muhajir negotiated with the local Berber tribes. During his reign, Muawiyah made one controversial decision that would change the Islamic world forever. He nominated his son, Yazid, as his successor. This was controversial for many reasons. First, Muawiyah had previously agreed with Hassan ibn Ali not to start a dynasty, but of course, his nomination of Yazid did the exact opposite. Second, it changed the customs for succession to the caliphate. The first Russian caliphs were more or less acclaimed by the will of the people, but as time passed, that system became more and more obsolete. After all, when Ali was assassinated, his supporters regarded his son, Hassan, as the next caliph. Because of the rise of factionalism following Uthman's murder, perhaps hereditary succession was the best possible option. Third, Yazid was regarded as morally unfit to rule, at least in retrospect. Yazid was known to have a devotion towards, shall we say, earthly pleasures. Muawiyah spent many months negotiating with tribal leaders to secure Yazid's succession right up to Muawiyah's death. Muawiyah died in Damascus in April 680 after succumbing to a brief illness. I find Muawiyah a very fascinating figure. Some of Muawiyah's decisions sparked disgust or were morally questionable, yet there were others that greatly benefited his state. In many ways, Muawiyah acted like a modern politician. Whether you like him or hate him, understand this. Under Muawiyah, the caliph became less of a religious leader and more like a monarch, so it would have made more sense to refer to Muawiyah as Muawiyah I. His rule brought a period of stability to the Umayyad Caliphate, yet his acts would create a controversial legacy. Immediately after his death, tensions would flare up once again. Muawiyah was succeeded by his son Yazid I, as Muawiyah planned. Before I discuss the looming crisis, I'll get the conquests out of the way first. In 682 or 683, Uqba ibn Nafi left Karawan and launched another campaign into the next Byzantine province, Numidia. Uqba defeated the Byzantines at a place called Zavi Justiniani, forcing the Byzantines into their defensive strongholds. With the Byzantines out of the way, the countryside was wide open, and it looked like the Umayyads would conquer all territory east of the Atlantic Ocean, but Uqba faced unexpected enemies, Berber tribes to the south. The Berber leaders led independent revolts that were probably encouraged by the Byzantines. One such Berber leader was Kassila. Abul Muhajir had actually negotiated with Kassila and treated him favorably, and it was said that Kassila converted to Islam. However, after Uqba returned, he took Kassila into captivity, preferring to subjugate local tribes by force. Unfortunately, Kassila escaped and raised an army against his former captors. Kassila's strategy was to wait for the momentum of Uqba's invasion to fizzle, and it worked. As Uqba was returning, his army was ambushed at Tahuda in 683. Uqba and 300 Umayyads were killed. Karawan was captured by Kassila, but it became explicitly clear that Kassila was not a Byzantine puppet. 
Unfortunately, the Umayyads could not fight back for a while because of the looming crisis, which I will get to now. The problem started as soon as Yazid ascended to the throne. Although Yazid was technically in charge, there were three others, all important men, with a legitimate claim for the caliphate, and they refused to accept Yazid as caliph. First up, Hussein ibn Ali. He was the last living grandson of Muhammad and son of Ali and Fatima. Up until Muawiyah's death, Hussein did not stand out among the Muslim community. During Muawiyah's reign, Hussein was asked by the Shia community several times to revolt, but Hussein refused. Second, Abdullah ibn Umar. Abdullah, the son of the second caliph, refused to recognize Ali as caliph, but only because the Muslim community did not reach an agreement. When the first fitna broke out, Abdullah remained neutral. Abdullah only took a strong stance now, most likely because he objected to Muawiyah's innovations in principles of succession. Finally, Abdullah ibn al-Zubair. He was the son of al-Zubair, also called al-Zubair, the companion of Muhammad who was slain during the Battle of the Camel. Abdullah was said to be the first child born to the Muhajirun. As he grew up, he participated in the Islamic conquests. He was present during the Battle of Yarmouk and had accompanied Amr ibn al-As when he conquered Egypt. Abdullah was said to have personally slain Gregory in the Battle of Sufatula. Abdullah survived the Battle of the Camel and was escorted back to Medina along with Aisha, after which he took no further part in the first fitna except attending the arbitration at Damat al-Jandal. Yazid wrote to his governor of Medina, Al-Walid ibn Utbah, quote, Seize Hussein, Abdullah ibn Umar, and Abdallah ibn al-Zubair to give the oath of allegiance. Act so fiercely that they have no chance to do anything before giving the oath of allegiance, end quote. Al-Walid asked his superior, Marwan ibn al-Hakam, for his opinion. Marwan stated that Hussein and Abdallah should be tracked down as soon as possible, while Abdullah should be left alone. Marwan believed that Abdullah would not consider fighting. Hussein and Abdallah were located in the same mosque and were told that they were being summoned by Al-Walid. Hussein agreed to answer the summons, while Abdallah refused. Hussein met Al-Walid and Marwan in Al-Walid's house, where Hussein stated, quote, fostering relations is better than severing them, end quote. After being informed of Muawiyah's death and Yazid's accession to the caliphate, Hussein was asked to give the oath of allegiance. Hussein replied that a person of his standing should give the oath of allegiance in public, not in private. Al-Walid agreed, but Marwan objected, stating that if Hussein left, the Umayyads would not have another opportunity like this. Marwan demanded that Hussein be detained until he gave the oath of allegiance, but Hussein scolded him and left unharmed. Meanwhile, Abdallah ibn al-Zubair simply remained in his house and hid. Al-Walid sent messenger after messenger throughout the day, but Abdallah was being protected by his followers. Under the cover of night, Abdallah left for Mecca. The following day, Hussein, along with most of his family, also left for Mecca. Al-Walid sent horsemen to try to capture them, but he failed. Neither Hussein nor Abdallah swore the oath of allegiance to Yazid, and for his failure, Al-Walid was replaced with Amr ibn Sa'id in June 680. If Yazid had any silver lining, it was that Abdullah ibn Umar promised to give the oath of allegiance, but he insisted that he do so after everyone in the provinces did so first. Messengers went back and forth between Yazid and Abdallah ibn al-Zubair discussing the Oath of Allegiance. Yazid swore that he would not accept it from Abdallah until he was brought in chains. Convinced that Abdallah was planning a revolt, Yazid ordered Amr ibn Sa'id to send an army to capture Abdallah. Amr ibn Sa'id had appointed Amr ibn al-Zubair, the brother of Abdallah, as commander of the police. It was known that the two brothers hated each other. 
Amr located every person who was in favor of his brother and had them flogged. Then, he moved against his brother, but his forces were defeated and scattered before they reached Mecca. Amr himself was taken prisoner, and those that had been flogged by him took vengeance on him, and Amr was killed. Because Abdallah was not defeated in the early stages in his rebellion, his power was allowed to grow and grow. Meanwhile, in Mecca, Hussein received letters from some Kufans, inviting him to start a revolt against Yazid. Hussein subsequently sent his cousin, Muslim ibn Aqil, to assess the situation in Kufa. Muslim informed Hussein that 12,000 Kufans were willing to give the oath of allegiance to him, not Yazid. Muslim encouraged Hussein to come to Kufa. Hussein sent messengers to Kufa and Basra with details about his plans, but unfortunately, the Basra messenger was brought to Ubaidullah and executed. News of these developments were reported to Yazid, who responded by adding Kufa to the jurisdiction of Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad. Yazid ordered Ubaidullah to find and kill Muslim ibn Aqil. After Ubaidullah arrived in Kufa, Muslim realized that living in his own home was no longer safe, so he moved to the house of Hani ibn Urwa al-Muradi. However, Ubaidullah paid a spy named Makil 3,000 dirhams to infiltrate the Shia and report their decisions. Makil succeeded in earning the full trust of Muslim, and as time passed, he learned that Muslim was staying in Hani's house. Ubaidullah confronted Hani at his house. Luckily, Muslim was not there. Hani insisted that he did not invite Muslim into his house. Instead, he claimed that Muslim came by himself. Ubaidullah demanded that Muslim be brought to him. Hani refused, and Ubaidullah responded by striking his forehead and imprisoning him. When news of the arrest of Hani reached Muslim, Muslim wandered the streets until he reached the home of a woman who agreed to shelter him. Unfortunately, this was a trap. The woman's son brought word to Ubaidullah, and the house was surrounded by police. Muslim attempted a desperate counterattack, but he was seriously wounded. Several of his teeth were knocked out, and he was bleeding. Muslim would be executed along with Hani. Hussein, unaware of Muslim's execution, decided to journey to Kufa with a handful of companions and family members on September 9th, 680. Along the way, many individuals tried to convince Hussein to return to Mecca, but Hussein was unshakable. Hussein sent his messenger, Qais ibn Mushir al-Sadawi, to his followers in Kufa, assuring them that he should reach the city in several days. Unfortunately, when Qais reached Al-Qadisiyah, mere miles away from Kufa, he was apprehended and sent to Ubaidullah, who executed him. When Hussein reached Al-Falabiyah, he learned of the executions of Muslim ibn Aqil and Hani ibn Urwa. Nevertheless, he pressed forward. Then, when he reached Zubala, he received even more grave news. His messenger had been discovered and killed. At this point, Hussein allowed anyone who wished to leave to be able to do so. Large amounts of people deserted him left and right. Only his companions from Mecca remained with him. Meanwhile, Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad ordered that the roads connected to Kufa be occupied, and Hussein learned about this from local Bedouins. Hussein needed to find a strategic position, and he found it at Du Husum. Hussein attempted to capture it, but as soon as he changed directions, the Umayyad cavalry vanguard appeared. Both sides raced to capture Du Husum, but it was Hussein who reached it first. About 1,000 cavalry led by Hur ibn Yazid al-Tamimi faced Hussein around midday. Hussein himself came forward and gave a speech. Since the Kufans had invited him to come, Hussein asked Hur to let him come to Kufa. If not, Hussein promised he would return to Mecca. Hur denied any knowledge about the Kufans' invitations and stated that he was under orders not to leave until they brought Hussein to Ubaidullah. Of course, Hussein refused to follow her. 
Since Hur refused to allow Hussein to willingly go either back to Mecca or forward to Kufa, Hussein moved towards Al-Qadisiyah, and Hur shadowed his movements. As Hussein stopped at Ninawah, a messenger arrived from Kufa with orders from Ubaidullah. Ubaidullah commanded her to force Hussein to stop in an open place without shelter or water. Hussein's followers tried to pressure him into attacking her, but Hussein was unwilling to commit violence. Instead, on October 2nd, Hussein set up camp in Karbala, a village that would soon become infamous. On October 3rd, Umar ibn Sa'd arrived from Kufa with 4,000 men. Ubaidullah had appointed Umar as governor of Ray to deal with a local rebellion, but recalled Umar in order to deal with the threat of Hussein. Umar was initially reluctant to fight Hussein, but Ubaidullah threatened to revoke Umar's governorship if he did not. After initial negotiations, Hussein stated that he was now willing to retreat, but Ubaidullah insisted that Hussein and his companions give the oath of allegiance to Yazid. Ubaidullah quickly sent another letter, ordering Umar to block access to the nearby Euphrates River so that Hussein and his followers could not obtain water. 500 Umayyad horsemen took positions along the Euphrates. While Hussein and his followers became thirsty, 30 of his horsemen and 20 of his footmen tried to fill up their water skins, but they engaged in a skirmish with Umayyad troops and were partially successful in collecting water. Meanwhile, Umar and Hussein were still hoping to avoid conflict, so Hussein made three proposals. Either he could return to Mecca, submit to Yazid directly, or be sent to one of the border outposts. Ubaidullah refused to accept any of these proposals, and instead summoned Shamir ibn D al-Jashan. If Umar would obey Ubaidullah's instructions, Shamir was ordered to obey Umar, but if Umar did not listen to Ubaidullah, Shamir would become the new commander. Umar cursed Shamir, accusing him of trying to ruin his progress. Umar added that Hussein would never surrender. Nevertheless, Umar understood that his only option was to attack, and he prepared for what would become the Battle of Karbala on October 9th. In the afternoon, the Umayyads advanced towards Hussein's camp, but Hussein persuaded them to wait until the next day. Hussein allowed his companions to leave one final time, yet most decided to remain with him. Throughout the night, Hussein and his companions prepared defenses. The next day, October 10th, both sides deployed for battle after finishing the morning prayer. Hussein put Zuhair ibn Kain in charge of his right wing, and Habib ibn Muzahir in charge of his left wing. His brother Abbas became his standard bearer. He only had 32 horsemen and 40 foot soldiers. During the night, Hussein placed firewood in a ditch behind the tents, and now he ordered that firewood to be set on fire in order to prevent being attacked from the rear. Hussein mounted his horse and gave an impassioned speech to the Umayyads, reminding them that he was Muhammad's grandson. Hur was so moved by that speech that he defected to Hussein's side. First, the Umayyads launched a volley of arrows, and then Hussein's forces responded. Then, the Umayyad right advanced, but Hussein's followers pointed spears against the Umayyad horses, and the Umayyad attack was repulsed. A similar situation happened with the Umayyad left. Surrounded on all sides, Hussein ordered his cavalry forward, and although they fought valiantly, they could not push the Umayyad cavalry away. Umar was forced to bring in 500 archers and armored cavalry. The Umayyad archers dealt so much damage to Hussein's horses that Hussein's cavalry had to dismount and fight on foot. Seeing that he could fight Hussein in only one direction, Umar concentrated his forces around Hussein's left and right. When enough of Hussein's forces had been slain, Umar ordered Hussein's tents to be set on fire. Only Hussein's tent was not set ablaze. Hussein was forced to give the order to let the tents burn. After all, if his troops tried to put out the fires, they would have been routed. The midday prayers brought some respite, but afterwards, the battle continued to rage. 
Hussein's troops were encircled, and although his companions continued to fight, they did so with desperate, almost suicidal ferocity. Even Hussein's relatives entered the battle and were mown down. Even at this point, Umayyad soldiers hesitated to attack Hussein directly, given that he was a direct descendant of Muhammad. However, Hussein became thirsty, so he approached the Euphrates River in order to drink some water, and it was on the riverbank where he was struck in the mouth by an arrow. Hussein pulled out the arrow, but blood spurted from his mouth. The soldiers began to surround Hussein. Hussein fought them, and they temporarily backed off. A boy from Hussein's family tried to defend Hussein, but his arm was chopped off. At this point, the Umayyads unleashed a savage frenzy. Umar was seen to have wept, but he made no effort to control his troops. Hussein was still alive. Every member of the Umayyad army had the capability to kill him, but they hoped that someone else would do so. Then, Shamir ibn D. al-Jashan shouted, quote, Shame on you. Why are you waiting for the man? Kill him. May your mothers be deprived of you. End quote. Hussein was attacked, beaten, stabbed, and decapitated. The heads of Hussein and his followers were sent to Ubaidah ibn Ziyad and then to Yazid. Perhaps as an ultimate insult, Yazid took his cane and poked Hussein's mouth with it until one of his companions begged Yazid to stop. The Battle of Karbala had reached its tragic conclusion. 72 of Hussein's followers were killed and 88 Umayyad soldiers were killed. Many people across the Islamic world reacted with shock. What had happened at Karbala could be more precisely described as a massacre rather than a battle. Many of Hussein's immediate family members were slain. His sister, Zainab, had survived. His son Ali was the only of his sons to survive, and they were sent to Yazid. Yazid was compassionate to both Zainab and Ali, and it was said that Yazid and Ali always dined together, although this act did little to boost Yazid's popularity. If Yazid or Ubaidullah thought that the death of Hussein would end all opposition to the Umayyads, they were extremely wrong. The Battle of Karbala was a traumatic start to what would become the Second Fitna, a civil war even longer and more destructive than the First Fitna. In fact, the Second Fitna was so dangerous that the Umayyads would fight for the mere survival of their dynasty.